hope. Hope is a funny thing, the way that it works. Um, when we hope, the result is either uh, joy or sorrow, right? So I'll give you a couple examples. Because hope is always something that you're looking forward to, and then when that thing happens, it's good or bad, right? So like last week, uh, I hoped that the members of Grace Church would vote yes to our pastoral intern, and you did, so my hope ended, and it became joy, right? I looked forward to something, it ended, and it turned into happiness. Yay, right? Back in January, however, I hoped that the Packers would beat Tampa Bay and go to the Super Bowl, and they did not. They lost, so my hope ended, and it became sorrow. <laughs> Actually, to be totally fair, um, sorrow's probably not the right word. Do you guys let me be a little transparent with you about who I really am? Uh, I think a better word would be angry. <laughs> let me explain. Uh, so. When the Packers lost, like, my hope that they would win was, like, I was so sure they were going to win that game. So I had high hopes. And, you know, the higher you go, the harder you fall, right? So when they lost, I was really, really upset and angry. So I, the moment the game was over, I was like, oh, I'm so angry. So I march upstairs. I go into my closet. I grab everything I own that has a Packers emblem on it, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, whatever I got, and I march downstairs, my wife's in the kitchen, I throw it on the kitchen table, and I'm like, I don't care what you do with it. You can sell it, you can throw it away, or you can burn it, but I don't want it anymore. I'm done being a Packers fan. It's over. I'm done. I got plenty of time up here, Chuck. <laughs> so now I know what it feels like to be a Vikings fan. So, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. You made me say it. All right. I was so angry. I just, in fact, can I even be even more transparent? It gets worse. I was so angry that when I went upstairs to go grab that stuff out of the closet, I stubbed my toe on the dresser. <laughs> And the reason I stubbed my toe in the dresser is because the laundry basket was in the way. So I picked up the laundry basket and I chucked it. And it broke. Which makes total sense because that's a very rational thought. The laundry basket should pay for my own stupidity. And then my wife brings reason into it. And she says to me, I don't think that was about the laundry basket. <laughs> like, yes, it's about my anger. It was about the Packers losing. I had such high hopes, and those hopes were shattered. So, so hope turns into joy or sorrow. It's good or it's bad. It's always something we look forward to that ends one way or the other. When we don't get what we hope for, hope dies. And hope dies because we hope in uncertainties. Right? I don't know what's going to happen in sporting events or in life events or tomorrow. I, I hope for things that are coming in the future, but I don't know what's going to happen. It's uncertain. 
But what if our hope was certain? What if our hope cannot die because it's a living hope? A living hope is exactly what Jesus' resurrection gives us. 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So now, <clears throat> this verse tells us three things. It tells us that God has caused us to be, number one, born again. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection. So born again, living hope, and through the resurrection. All of which happens because of his great mercy. So we get born again, and in being born again, we get a living hope, and that living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus, and everything, all of that, is a culmination of God's great mercy. So the question is, what's mercy? So mercy is, essentially, simply just means that you don't get what you deserve, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is all of us. That is all humans who have ever lived. We all fit that description as sinners who fall short of God's standard of perfection. And the result of falling short of God's standard of perfection is in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Because we fall short of God's perfection, we deserve death. I mean, we all live out and act out who we are, right? I mean, who you are is expressed in your activity, your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes. We express ourselves. That's what our bodies do and our eyes do and our mouths do and even our ears do. We express who we are. It's just our human nature. And since we are sinners, all of us, we act out, we express who we are, sinners, by acting out in sin. Okay, so think about it like this. You go to work and you do your job, right? Then your company pays you for doing your job. Fair, right? So you worked and then you get fair wages for your work. The pay matches the work. At least that's what it's supposed to be, right? Spiritually, we also get a paycheck. We get a paycheck for the works that we do in this life, and the pay matches our work. So what does it look like? Isaiah 64, 6 tells us what our work is. It tells us all about our work. He says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So that's the work. That's our works. That's what we accumulate through all of our things that we think we do that are so good and so great. Oh, I'm such a good guy. I did this or I did that. All of it culminates into, without Christ, without Jesus, it culminates into filthy rags. So then we get paid for our works, right? What's the payment? The payment is, we're told what the payment is in Romans 6.23. I just read it. The wages for that Poor work, that filthy rags that we accumulate, is death. The wages of sin is death. So our works are so filthy, or our works are garbage. And the result of our garbage is death. That's, that's the best we have to offer. 
That is what we've earned because if we stand before God with all of our works and all the things we've done on our own in our sinful nature, say, God, you know, I know I was really bad at times, but look, I did this. I gave this person I, something. I helped them do that. I, I, I did a lot of good things. He's like, you don't have my son Jesus, so it's not good enough. You're not good enough. You are you have a sinful nature, so you have nothing to offer me. So when we bring our works to the table, God looks at it and says, Scubala! Right? <laughs> Scubala is a Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians 3.8. It's a word that's translated in your Bible as rubbish. Okay? The Greek word scubala literally just means anything that is that, can be, that should be discarded. So common translations are rubbish, garbage, or dung. That's scubala. That's our works. That's what we lay at the table before God. Right? It's like when your mouse, or I'm sorry, your mouse, when your cat brings you a dead mouse, and they leave it at your feet like, hey, I brought you a gift, and you're like, thanks? <laughs> you, know, what, you want me to play with it now? You know? And, and so, like, that's what we bring to God. We're like, hey, God, look what I did. And the cat's so proud of himself, right? Sits in front of it like, hey, see the mouse I caught? And you're proud of the mouse for trying, but you, or the cat, sorry. Oh, boy. Well, the mouse probably gave it a try, too. <laughs> we have nothing to offer God. We just don't have anything to offer. We, we have no good works, but even, think about it like this. Even if we did have some good works, which I would argue that if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, there are no good works. Nothing. doesn't matter if you give to charity, help old ladies cross the street, shovel people's driveways, mow their lawn, whatever you do. You do it for free with a joyful heart because you want to help people. Without Christ, you still fall short. Your, you, your sinful nature does not allow you to be perfect. And that's the difference. Even if you have some good works, did some good things, and you could probably list a bunch of things that you've done that are good. I could look at some of you and say, I've seen you do this and that. And I could say, I've done this and that. And those are good works. But the problem is, good isn't good enough. You need perfection. That's God's standard. You don't have only good works. That's the problem. Even if you have some good works, you don't have only good works. And so, we don't have perfection. And without perfection, we don't meet God's standard. And if we don't meet God's standard, our wages for our works is death. So I say all this about how bad we really are. That's all the discouraging part. I've got good news. It's coming. I say all this about how bad we really are so you can see how good God really is. Now, despite the fact that we have nothing good to offer God and that all our works amount to garbage, God is so good that he's merciful to us. Though we've earned death, God in his mercy does not give us death. Instead, God in his grace gives us Jesus. So let me tell you what I mean when I say he gives you Jesus. The, the answer to what it means when he gives us Christ, gives us Jesus, is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he made him, that's Christ, that's Jesus, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He didn't know sin, and God made him to know sin, to carry our sin, so that 
in him we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning all of that worthless work that we do that amounts to garbage before God and thus earns us eternal death is consumed by Jesus. You get the, the, the gravity of such a reality that Jesus Christ himself, the God of the universe, who has existed forever, there was never a beginning to his existence. He just has been, and in that existence, he has been perfect. And then for this moment, for these few hours on a cross, he consumes, he doesn't just carry your sin. He doesn't just throw it on his back like a backpack. He becomes your sin. He feels it for the first time. The Son of God, the perfect man. God himself feels the, and, and, and the experience and the weight and the putrid stank of our sin in him. He can sense it. He says to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The Father can't even look at it anymore. And Jesus, for the first time, not only feels sin, but feels the effects of sin, which is a separation in relationship between him and the Father, which he had never known before. That, that is grace. That's, that's a good God. That's the death that we deserve. And he consumes your sin. And he doesn't just carry it. He feels it. And on the cross, for the first time, he feels death. But that's not all. When we believe in him, when we place our faith in him, when we trust that that work he did on the cross is sufficient to cover our sins, and we believe that, we trust in him for our salvation, when we declare that his works are perfect and ours are not, that only he can take our sins, he doesn't only take our sins, he also does something else. He gives us his righteousness. To take our sins is God's mercy, right? Because we deserve to be punished for our sins. That's, we always think about God as a loving God. Well, God's a loving God. Why would he do that? He's, he is also a just God. He has just as much justice in him as he does love. And when he looks at wrongdoing and sin and evil and it completely opposes his perfect, righteous, and holy nature, he has to deal with it. He has to. He doesn't just take your sins and go, you know what, let's just throw these in the garbage. Nah, we don't need those anymore. I forgive you because I'm a loving God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not only do I love you and, I have to, and, I'm, and I'm going to forgive you for these sins, but in order to forgive you in my justice, I have to deal with these sins. I can't just ignore them or push them aside, pretend they don't exist. I have to deal with them. So you have a choice. And your choice is, I can deal with them in you, or I can deal with them in my son. I can punish these sins. I can, I can bring justice on the evil, wicked sinfulness that you produce. I, I have to deal with it in justice. And I can give it justice in you dying eternally and your sin is so greatly opposed to God's righteousness and his holiness that it will take eternity for him to punish your sin that is the degree of 
putrid stank that we offer, of garbage that we offer God. That's how bad it is. That he doesn't say, ah, I'll just throw it in the trash, we'll forget about it. No, if you're going to keep it, and that's what you want to offer me, is what he's saying, then I'm going to deal with it in you, and my justice demands that it be punished, and the only right punishment for something that opposes me so greatly is eternal death. That's what we face. That's a heavy reality. Or, because of God's mercy, and because of his grace, he says, what I offer you is my love. Because I love you, I'm going to give you a gift. And this gift is you don't have to be punished eternally. Give me that garbage. Give me that garbage. Trust me with it. Trust me with your life. I will take it, and I will make my son bear it. And I will kill him instead. Because he's, the, because he's perfect, he's the only one who is able to carry the burden of all of our sins and rise from the death that comes from that sin and conquer the death and conquer this. He's the only one. He's the only one who's valid enough, worthy enough. That's why Revelation is filled with worship of God, of Jesus, and they're saying, worthy is a lamb, worthy is a lamb, worthy to be slain. Why is he worthy to be slain? Because he's perfect. He's the only one who can take that punishment for us and wake from the dead. He's the only one who has the power or the ability or the personhood or the righteousness or the power to turn death into life. And that is why 1 Peter 1.3 says, He has caused us to be born again. The salvation, that's salvation that God's offering. The salvation that he freely offers us is, is his work. He caused it, not us. We didn't do the work. He did the work. Jesus did the work. Jesus lived a perfect life. You have not. When you trust in him for your salvation, his perfect life is your credit. That's not fair. Anytime anybody tells me something about God that isn't fair, so you want fair, then you get hell. That's fair. That's what we deserve. What's not fair is that Jesus' perfect righteousness through 33 years of life, you get for free? That's not fair. That doesn't make sense. That's, that's grace. And it's all Jesus' work. It's all God's work. He's the one who causes you to be born again. So Jesus tells us in John 3, 3, what being born again means, or, or, or why it's necessary. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this idea of being born again is best expressed in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That newness... That new person that we become in Christ is only possible because God causes us to be born again. Because he's the one who does the work. He's the one who does the calling. He's the one who does the saving. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is his gift of grace and his gift of faith so that no one could boast in their own works. That's, it's all for his glory and it's all for your good. This is a sweet deal. 
This is the best deal ever. This is why it's called good news. It should be called the best news. Because it is. This reality that we get something we completely don't deserve. And it's not just like, I mean, yeah, we've all gotten stuff we don't deserve in life, right? Maybe someone gave you a gift for no reason, just because they love you. Gave you money. Hey, I just felt like giving you money. Like, whoa, man, thank you so much. I, I, I don't know what to say. Like, you don't deserve it. You didn't ask for it. You just get it, right? And you're like, oh, it feels good. And you, like, want to express appreciation. That, that doesn't even come close to the degree, to the severity of God's goodness to you to offer you eternal life. What is at stake here is forever. This is not just like, eh, a decision. Eh, I'll just live my life. I'll make my choices. This is life or death. This is not just, I mean, we think of life as long, right? I mean, life just goes so fast. I, I, I still consider myself young. I'm 38 years old, you know, and, I, and I'm like, but man, the last 20 years, whoo, they flew by, right? And I imagine as you get older, it just feels like it goes faster, Right? Is that why they say it's over the hill? Because once you get over, it's all downhill from there, right? So, I, I'm kidding, older people. Uh, <laughs> I was asking, not telling. Uh, <laughs> I hope it gets better. <laughs> the reality is life just goes so fast. I mean, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, man. That's not that long. The Bible admits it's not that long. It says, you are but a vapor. Here for one moment and then life is nothing. The scope of reality, the scope of history, such a short time period, such a short span of life to have an impact, to make choices. And to make one choice that has an impact forever, for eternity. Though God is the one who causes us to be born again, we have a human responsibility to respond to the gospel. We have a human responsibility to believe the gospel. You still have to choose to believe that you're a sinner, that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sin, and that he rose from the grave. You have to believe that. I'm telling you. I'm not suggesting. I'm commanding. And if you're thinking to yourself, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm not telling you. God is. It's a command for every human in the universe who's ever lived and ever will live. There is a command from God. You have to believe the gospel. You have to believe that you are a sinner, that God is holy, that Jesus lived a holy life for you and died on the cross and took your sins and gives you his righteousness, that he rose from the grave, conquering your death and conquering your sin. All you have to do is believe it. Don't work for it. You don't earn it. You just have to believe it. That's the only requirement. And that's a responsibility that we bear. And it's a command that God gives to everybody. And if you do not, if you, if you do not believe the consequences for disobeying that command are eternal. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, I think the most important question at this point is, 
do you believe? Like, I would be foolish to assume that a room full of people would be filled with everybody who agrees on the gospel. So do you believe that you are a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, conquering your death and sin? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? I'm not sure how some of you answer that question, so I want to give you something. I'm going to read a verse. I'm read a verse for you. I want you to hear it. I want you to think about it. And I want you to respond to it. Okay? I, I, I want you to be in a mental and emotional spot where you're ready to receive, that you're open to receive. You know, because I think, I think in our hearts, if we don't believe, there is resistance. Absolutely. You're telling me my whole life's got to change. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I'm good where I am. Give me my space. Let me work it out on my own. I'll get to that idea in a second. But I want you to willingly open up your hearts and minds and think about this. If you are resistant to believing, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. Believe that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins and rose from the grave, and you're saved. It's really that simple. right? You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to be a good person. I mean, that's the biggest argument I've ever heard from people. Like, I'm not good enough. When I share the gospel, people are like, I'm just, I'm just too messed up. I'm like, that's exactly why I'm talking to you. So am I. We all are. None of us are perfect. You're not perfect. Of course, you're, you're never going to get right before you need God. You're never going to get right on your own. You're never going to get to that place where it's like, okay, I'm good enough to present myself to God. The only reason you can present yourself to God is because you're good enough. That's why we need him. So I want to simplify this for you even more, okay? Acts 16, 31. This is the command. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That simple. Just believing. It's just a matter of faith. Just taking that leap, just trusting him. No work, no tests, no caveats or qualifiers, just simply one choice that will change your life today and change the entirety of the rest of your life, and also change where you spend eternity, heaven or hell. God's presence or the absence of God, eternal life or eternal death, eternal joy or eternal suffering. And listen to me, I'm, I'm going to push you. I know people don't like being pushed. Came to church on Easter morning. <laughs> Who do you think you were going to hear? I'm going to push you. You need to believe this now. If you're resistant to this gospel, my push is believe it now. Now. Don't give yourself that time to talk yourself out of what you're feeling convicted to believe. Believe it now. And there's a reason I say now. Because James 4.14 says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You're not promised another day. You could die on the way home from church. I hope not. It can happen. When I lived in Illinois, I was a youth pastor in Illinois years ago. We had youth group Sunday nights. This 13-year-old boy shows up at our youth group. 
one night. It was the first time he ever came, first time I met him. And that night, he seemed, uh, I don't know, quiet. So I really felt led to share the gospel with him. So we had a night of Bible and dodgeball and food and fun. It was a good time in the youth group. And I sat down on a couch next to him at church that night in the youth room and started talking to him and shared the gospel with him. Told him about Jesus, told him he's a sinner. You know, said, uh, we're all sinners, man. We're all in the same boat. You need Jesus. He died for your sins, rose from the grave. You have, you gotta believe that now. Like, and he's like, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, dude, I, like I typically I give people space. You know, I don't like jump in people's faces like I'm doing to you right now and saying, believe now, right? Like, that's not my style. But then I felt like the spirit was saying, this kid needs to hear this now. He needs to know this now. So I'm like, listen, man, you don't, I told him, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know if you'll survive the night. You don't know if you'll make it home from youth group. I remember specifically telling that. You don't know if you'll make it home from the drive from youth group. So in that moment, he did not confess or, 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 or say that he believed or put his trust or faith in Jesus, at least not to my knowledge. My only hope is that he did eventually before he went to bed that night because he didn't wake up the next morning. He died from a brain aneurysm at 13 years old. That's wildly unheard of. 13-year-old with a brain aneurysm? What are you doing, God? And then I think about that question, I think, I know exactly what he's doing. He gave that kid an opportunity to hear the gospel. He got to see and hear, and I have no idea if he believed. I can just hope that he did. And I'm telling you, now's the time, because you don't know if you'll wake up tomorrow. You just don't know. If you're resistant, how long will you resist? The only reason you still have an opportunity is because of Romans 2, 4, which says, do you not know that God's patience with you is his kindness? As he waits for you to repent, and he calls you over and over and over again, repent, 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 but there will be a day when patience ends. And you have to face the works that you bring to the table. And if those works are not the works of Jesus, but they're your garbage, then you are in trouble. Okay, I have more to say, <laughs> but I want to take a moment here. Uh, I'm giving you a command. It's not my command, it's God's, to believe. And I'm telling you, do it now. And what I don't want to do is keep preaching and you get distracted by me talking. <laughs> so I want to do something right now. I want to give you an opportunity if you don't believe. If you do believe, I want you to join. I just, I want you to, because if you're sitting here thinking to myself, I don't know if I do. Or, no, I definitely don't. Or if you are unsure, you know that you're not a believer, you, you've not put your trust in Jesus for, for your salvation, and you, and you want to, and, I, and I'm telling you to do it now, and you're feeling like, oh, okay, now, I, I'll do it now. But then the next question is like, what do I do? <laughs> right? Like, how does this work? 
Do I like write God a note and put it in the mail and he sends it back? Like, you saved! Like, how does this work? Right? You want to know how it works? It really is simple. Like I said, there's no works for you to do. Because if you are, if you believe it right now, you are saved. That's the reality. You didn't do anything. You didn't just declare it or say it or stand up and go, oh, I just got saved. None of that happened. It wasn't crazy or wild. The earth didn't shake. The angels didn't come down and fill this room with light. Nothing crazy like that. But if you believe it, you're saved. But I, I do realize that as human beings, we need tangible realities, right? Like we are people who need to put our hands on something, a moment, a declaration, some form or object that I can say that, that I can put my arms around, that I can grab it, I can see it, I can understand it, it makes sense to me. And so what I want to do is I want to lead you in a few words. If you're new here, this is not normal, I never do this, but I believe that this gospel is powerful. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God to save. So, if that's you, and you want to believe now, you know how you do it? You just tell him. It's that simple. You just tell him. You just tell God. I don't know what you tell him. I don't want to tell you what to tell him. I think you just tell him. Just talk to God. Yes. Yeah, I'll take that. I want that, Jesus. You can just say, and I'll, if you don't know what to say, because that could be your answer. I don't know what, what do I say to him. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. You are perfect, and your son, Jesus, died on the cross for my sins. I choose to believe that now. If that helps you formulate believing in your mind, then that's awesome. But I cannot command, I cannot declare God's command for you to believe now and then not give you the opportunity to believe now. So the next question is if you just believed or if you've been a believer for 25 years or anywhere in between, what happens when I believe? What's the result of being born again? What is Jesus' resurrection that gives me new life, that saves my soul? What happens? What does it look like? Verse 3, he says, you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So listen, Jesus' resurrection is the means by which we get living hope because he is our living hope, right? Because he's alive. He's our hope. He's the thing we look forward to. He's the gift. He's what we get, right? I've said this a thousand times. God is the gospel because the good news is the gospel, and the good news is we get God, and we get God in Christ, so we get Jesus. That's the good news. He's the hope. He's what we look forward to, because that's what we get in the end, and we get him now, 
And we get him in the end, in fullness. The totality of Christ in his presence. We get that in the end. That's our hope. And because our hope is alive, it's called a living hope. Sin and death could not contain his power. They couldn't hold him down. He conquered the power of sin. And he conquered the grave. And he conquered death when he rose from the grave. So when we are born again, this living Savior becomes our living hope. And Romans 8.24 tells us what hope looks like. It says, now hope that is seen is not hope. Do you get that? For who hopes for what he sees? Does that make sense to you? You don't hope for something you can see because that's not hope. Hope is looking forward to something you can't see. Once you see it or once it's realized, once it comes to fruition, hope ends, right? Just like I was talking about earlier with the Packers game. Once the event happens, the hope's over. So you ha in order for hope to be a reality, it has to be something that you don't see, something that you're waiting for. And Paul goes on and says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That is what faith in Jesus does. It gives us hope for that which we do not currently see. And what we don't currently see right now is this perfection of Jesus completed in us. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If Jesus gave us his perfection, if that's what you're saying the gospel is, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, lived a perfect life, and then gives me his perfection. If I get his perfection, why aren't I perfect? That is the question that hope answers. Though we are still in this sinful flesh, we have his Holy Spirit living in us, making us like Christ, perfecting us daily. And our hope, our confidence, our absolute assurance is that when we're done with this wretched body and this sinful life, he will make us new and perfect so that we can enjoy his eternal happiness forever with no more sin. So because Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, we now get living hope when we believe in him. Confidence, assurance of a better future, a perfected future in which we no longer have to suffer through the sorrow and the pain and the heartache of being in this wicked, wretched, sinful flesh. But what does living hope look like in eternity? What does living hope look like in my life today? I mean, that's really the question, right? Like, I want living hope. I get that eternally it looked like perfection. What does it look like today? Joy. That's what it looks like. Joy. The living hope of Jesus in you looks like joy. 1 Peter 1, 8, just a few verses after our, our verse. Though you do not now see him, you get that right there? Though you do not now see him, what is the, we just read, Romans 8, 24, says that's what hope is, not seeing him yet. That's why we have hope, because we haven't seen him yet. So really what he's saying is, because of your living hope, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I think the best way to see joy in God at work in our lives is to compare joy to its greatest opponent, suffering. 
In order to see the beauty of joy, you have to lay it against a backdrop of something that opposes it. That is why diamonds come in little black boxes, because the black backdrop illuminates the beauty of the diamond, and so also suffering illuminates the power of joy in God. Suffering reveals how deeply rooted your satisfaction in God really is. What it means to have joy in Jesus is not that this life will be pain-free or suffering-free or trial-free. Joy is not just happiness in general either. The joy that we get from our living hope, whom is Jesus Christ, is the joy that comes from God being your greatest delight. Your most satisfying pleasure and your most valuable treasure. Joy in God that is so incredibly satisfying that even suffering in this life, though painful and real and hard, is met with joy in knowing that I have not lost and can not lose my greatest treasure, God. The most painful suffering that a human could possibly endure, I believe this, is to lose a child. Tell me something worse, because it doesn't exist. There's not, there can't be anything worse than losing a child. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The love you have for your kids doesn't even compare to any other relationship at all. Right? I mean, I love my wife, but if she died, I could get a new one. <laughs> but I, I'm just kidding. I mean... <laughs> Right now, she's in the back, and her face is covered by the, the shadow, so I have no idea what I'm walking into when I get home. <laughs> I love you. Please don't die. And I say that jokingly, but it is a reality. I mean, you can't replace a kid. I mean, you can't replace a spouse either, but the point is that, <laughs> the point is that you know, there, there is no pain that's greater than that child that you love, to lose that child that you love. And I've never experienced it. We had it two miscarriages that's different I think it feels different but to lose a child that you love that you've known I, I can't I can't even fathom it, it's got to be the worst pain imaginable and if any of you have ever experienced that I'm sorry that has got to be the worst and if I could have the perfect words for you I would give them to you but I do have hope to give you. Despite how painful that experience would be, how agonizing, how excruciatingly difficult that would be to endure, through it all, if God is your greatest treasure, you can still have joy. Because though you love your children, and your spouse and family and other people to a certain degree. And though losing them would be the worst. If God is your greatest desire, your fullest satisfaction, your most enjoyable pleasure, because he is your delight, if that is a reality, then even at the loss of something, someone you love, a tragedy that happens in life, 
at the death of somebody, and, and not just a death, but a tragic and painful death. Whether maybe it's years of cancer and treatment and suffering and crying and financial burdens, and you could, the list could go on, it could get uglier and uglier, and through it all, when God is your greatest delight and your greatest treasure, you still have not and cannot lose him. That is joy. That is what it means to have God. God is not, listen, the gospel message, all the stuff I said earlier about if you, your works are garbage and you're going to hell for them. That's the bad news. The good news is God is not telling you, hey, run away from hell as fast as you can. The gospel message is not you should be scared of hell and come to me. The gospel message is that hell is the consequence for your sin. But here's the gospel. You can have me. That's what God is saying. That's the good news. He's not trying to scare you out of hell and into his arms. He's offering you a pleasure, a joy that surpasses every other joy that is so powerful that when you compare it to the worst thing imaginable, which is the loss of a child, such a great suffering, that his joy stands firm. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I'm not just telling you run away from hell. I'm telling you come to Christ. There is an, an endless life of satisfaction and pleasure and joy even in suffering. And when you endure that suffering, there is an even better promise. A life after a life of suffering that will have no suffering, but only the fullness of all pleasures and joy in the presence of God. That's the good news. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9 through 9. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus' resurrection doesn't promise us a life free of suffering. Jesus' resurrection promises that the suffering is not in vain. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus' resurrection gives meaning to suffering. As our living hope, he provides joy during our suffering and knowing that when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we are not only promised the fullness of joy in heaven, but we are promised joy today, even in suffering. That's not just hope. That is the joy of living hope. Let's pray.